Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. What we like to do with surveillance is not talk to the fancy people, the pundits, punditry, more pundits. We like to talk to the people that they read and they listen to. One of those is Jared Bernstein, an esteemed career at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. And a senator from Delaware a few years ago discovered this and said, Dr. Bernstein, join the team. Jared Bernstein, part of the transition team for the president-elect. Jared, I know we need to break some news here, and I do want to know who the Secretary of Treasury is going to be, but I really want to go to transition minutia. You are lined up, I think, to walk champ and major. You're going to be like first dog walker uh, for the Biden administration. What is it like being on a transition team? I think the most important thing to recognize there is that this is such a critical moment for a smooth, normal transition process to happen. And what's happening right now is anything but normal. Remember, I was the chief economist to the then vice president-elect back in 2008. And at this point, we were actively planning. Remember, yeah. that was the Great Recession. We were actively planning for a fiscal relief package that was legislated less than four weeks after Obama and Biden took office. That's what should be happening now. But this is not normal, my friends, for this transition to be thrown well, off this way. And, and it's coming at great cost in terms of health and in terms right. of the economy. Okay, a delicate question then. And, you know, we make fun of Champion Major, the dogs returning to the White House with the president-elect. Jared, what's so important here is then what is your action plan if this is transition interrupted? Are you planning out a budget process without the knowledge of the present White House? Well, certainly we are uh, obviously, and you'll hear the president-elect talking about this, thinking about a, a fiscal package with great urgency. One of the things he said, and by the way, president-elects, they like to wait till they're in, in the office to start moving legislation. He has said that is not the case when it comes to fiscal relief. That should happen in the lame duck. And I couldn't agree more. But if you're talking about uh, preparing for uh the uh, for, for this uh, job that he is uh, that the American people have elected him for, uh, you've got to talk about virus control. And that, of course, you can see the president elect is very active on planning virus control. But, you know, his uh, uh, Vivek Murthy, who's uh, the former Surgeon General on the uh, COVID team, recently talked about how important it is to get that information in transition from folks <clears throat> from folks that are currently in the White House. And that's not happening. Again, avoidable suffering to Americans in terms of health care and economic hardship because this transition is not uh, occurring the way it should. Jared, we're lucky to have a bit of time with you this morning so we can talk about the transition a little bit more in just a moment. I want to talk about the fiscal plan just a bit with you. The Republican Senate was the obstacle to getting the deal that Pelosi wanted. We're still likely to have a Republican Senate. We have one now. We'll likely have one after January as well. What is it that you think that President-elect Biden can achieve that Speaker Pelosi couldn't? 
Well, I think the uh, way you teed it up is exactly right. I mean, uh, the uh, the president-elect continues to talk about how people can decide to cooperate, and now is, is the perfect time for them to do so. We have heard positive sounds about a fiscal package from uh, members of the Republican uh, uh, squad, including McConnell himself. What we're not seeing is the kinds of negotiations that the president-elect has been stressing, and that needs to happen as of yesterday. You know, we have... Uh, an unemployment insurance system where uh, over 20 million people are uh, making claims and at least 12 million, we recently learned, uh, could lose their uh, support as that's uh, as 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 it expires at the at the end of the year, we have over 400,000 small businesses that have closed. the The long term unemployment is increasing at a rate we haven't seen in the history of that series. We learned this morning uh, that, uh, according to ZipRecruiter, job growth is slowing, uh, not just in places where the virus is surging, but in other places as well. So I think the urgency of the economic situation has and the health situation, which of course are intimately connected, just has to reach legislators. I'm an economist. I'm not a politician. I can't tell you the strategy to get them there, but I can certainly stress the urgency of this moment in that regard. Well, let's talk about the urgency and the size, because currently there is a one and a half trillion dollar spread between the two sides. And I'm not sure how that's closed at all, if it has at all in the last month. What kind of size package do you need in a moment like this, Jared? I think probably the best way to think about it is start from the bottom up and start adding up what's necessary. State and local budgets uh, are, are really hurting. Uh, remember, they can't run budget deficits. Uh, the unemployment insurance system, as I mentioned, uh, needs work. Uh, nutritional support uh, has to be on the table. There's uh, lots of people facing uh, potential evictions and foreclosures. So we need uh, those programs to uh, continue and to be uh, re-upped. And of course, virus control is at the top of the list. Now, if you start summing that up, you'll get into uh, the neighborhood of the HEROES Act, which is what the uh, uh, president-elect was touting the other day. Uh, and at least the uh, second version of that was somewhere in the two to three trillion range. But let me say this. I think what matters most right now is speed. So there's speed, their size, their composition. They're all important. Uh, but I would put speed at the top Ooh. of the list because I think this economy is at a precarious point. Jared, can you elaborate on that? If speed is the biggest issue right now, do you think that Democrats should cave to the Republican demand of a smaller bill and just get something, anything passed, even if it's substantially less than what you think is required? You know, I just don't think uh, cave is the word that anyone should be thinking about up there. It's actually cooperation, working together to serve uh, both the uh, health care and economic needs of, of the American people. And, you know, as the president-elect has stressed, I mean, there are uh, uh, not avoidable. There are avoidable deaths uh, that could occur if if uh, both sides would get together and start cooperating. Now, by the way, Ron Klain, incoming chief of staff, someone who knows a lot about uh, uh uh, about about pandemics. He pointed out something the other day that I want to stress. He said, you know, yes, vaccine, that's important. <laughs> it's essential. But, you know, vaccine without vaccination doesn't get you very far. So along with all this other transition planning that should be happening now, the manufacture and the distribution of the vaccine uh, is essential planning that has to occur. And I don't think anybody needs to cave to each other to get to work on serving the American people in that regard. Jared, given that there is some sort of bridge right now to try to get us through the next very difficult couple of months, what do you think is necessary when it comes to potential infrastructure spending, which has been something that's been sort of touted out there? And how should we 
pay for something like that? Yeah, that's a really uh, that's a really good question. I I, I think that the um, the we, we I, I focus so much on relief and this fiscal bridge to the other side of the crisis. I don't think we should forget, and certainly the president elect uh, has a uh, has an agenda that is extremely uh, I think rich and important in this regard. That simply getting to the other side of the crisis back to where we were isn't nearly good enough. We have to the the way he puts it is build back better. That is have a far more resilient economy on the other side of the crisis. And resiliency in the case that you're raising has to do with investments in clean energy and infrastructure, healthcare infrastructure, safety net infrastructure, an unemployment insurance system that's up to the task, a healthcare system that's up to the task. And all of those investments, I think, need to be made. Now, in terms of pay-fors, that's a discussion that's going to have to happen uh, when the uh, president-elect becomes the president. We start those negotiations. I will say that in terms of relief packages right now, it is essential to recognize that interest rates are so low and locked in at such a low rate. So government borrowing, given the return on the kinds of investments I'm talking about, I mean, we can literally save lives at a, a an extremely uh, favorable interest rate. And the idea that Congress isn't acting with urgency to do that right now, uh, I think is just a, a huge mistake. 84 basis points on a 10-year. Jared, great to catch up. Appreciate your time, you. sir. Come back soon. Jared Bernstein there of the Centre on Budget and Policy Priorities. We made a commitment at Bloomberg Surveillance to speak to experts on this pandemic long ago and far away. Think March. My first conversation was with an esteemed radiologist at Mount Sinai. This morning, these many months on, a conversation with Dr. David Rich. He's president of the Mount Sinai Hospital. A radiologist of Mount Sinai who long ago and far away actually bought radiological images, snapshots of the lungs of Wuhan. That was our first important interview on this pandemic. Today, David Rich joins as president of Mount Sinai Hospital in Mount Sinai, Queens. David, I look down 101st Street and I count the ambulances. It's not as bad as it was in April. It's not as bad as it was in May. And yet we're hearing about increasing troubles. Give us a snapshot of Mount Sinai this Friday morning. Uh, this Friday morning, and really for the past 30 days, Mount Sinai Hospital has about 50 patients with active COVID infection. Uh, that is uh, significantly less. At the peak of the crisis, there were 770, including uh, patients in the tents across the street. So it is a, a markedly less severe surge than what we saw in the first wave. Then why are we closing schools? Why are we seeing hospitals in North Dakota, in Utah, in Idaho so challenged? Is it just a new pandemic of geography or is there something different this time? Well, this time we see what's coming at us. We have testing in the region. It's certainly not as good as it needs to be in the, in the long term, but we can see the positivity rates. Uh, we didn't know back in February and March what was coming towards us. There was no capacity and then we were overwhelmed. This time we can see the increase coming at us and take proactive public health measures in advance of effective vaccines in order to control the spread so that we don't see the incredible amount of death and excess death outside of COVID that we saw during March, April, and May. Dr. Rich, good morning from London. Is, is it a different type of 
population that's being affected this time? Is this why you know, fewer people are ending up in hospital? Or is it because of the viral load that we're seeing? Well, there, there are certain things that are different about this second wave, just looking at it from our perspective uh, for inpatients. We see that uh, they're slightly younger, implying that we're doing a better job of protecting our elders. Uh, we see a slightly decreased length of stay, and uh, we're um, very happy that the mortality rate came down from 20% in the first wave to 5.1% in the second wave. While still a very deadly disease, this does give some hope that something that we're doing, something in terms of therapeutics or better management of oxygen levels, is improving the outcome of patients, but still not a disease to take lightly at all. The, the World Health Organization has ruled uh, using antiviral remdesivir as a treatment, has ruled against uh, using remdesivir as a treatment of COVID-19. What treatments are available right now that you are using? Well, remdesivir, it does have some uh, data that are, are contradictory, but uh, in the early phase of inpatient care, uh, remdesivir and in patients not yet uh, uh, showing their own antibody response Convalescent plasma are tools that we're using, and then as the disease progresses and we see more lung involvement, the use of uh, glucocorticoids, commonly known as steroids, such as dexamethasone, and uh, drugs that thin the blood or prevent clotting uh, have been very effective for us in, in preventing some of the complications that we saw in the first wave. Dr. Richard, you're 36 years at Mount Sinai in doing the, the hard work of anesthesiology. You have seen bed to bed what people do. I want you to speak to our audience worldwide about the emotion of the CDC yesterday, basically cancel Thanksgiving or what we're seeing in London about cancel Christmas. How does a pro like you observe the political maelstrom of this pandemic? Well, it's, it's very hard for many of us to see uh, that science is not being uh, taken in the, in the proper regard throughout the, really throughout the, the United States. I, I can't speak as much to the rest of the world, but it's uh, a problem when we don't have universal acceptance by public health officials and by governments that we must mask, we must socially distance, that the Thanksgiving holiday is in many ways the worst of possible situations for spread of this virus because having large groups of people indoors sharing a meal is probably the most effective way of mm -hmm. spreading it's therefore something we must we must avoid. David Rich, Mount Sinai, thrilled he could take generous time with us uh, today. Of course, it's 30, I think it's 34, maybe 36, excuse me, 36 years at Mount Sinai, truly committed to that institution. On the market, Anna Han, Wells Fargo Securities Equity Strategist, joins us right now. Anna, we started this program by talking about the cross currents for financial market participants. How do you react to the news this morning? Well, the news this morning is encouraging for equities. And like you were talking about earlier, that tug of war, it's one of those items that might be able to yoink the market a little bit higher. But in the near term, you know, we think that equity volatility and equity uncertainty still remains elevated. So in the immediate term, it's, it's hard to say what's going to win out, the rising COVID cases, or is it going to be this vaccine and, uh, you know, perhaps rekindle stimulus talks on both ends? Maybe that's going to uh, be the winning factor. But, you know, six months out, John, we still do think equity risk and uncertainty will decay and equities will march higher. 
Uh, and I want to talk uh, really importantly here, and I want to drive it into a physics discussion here. You work at, at Yale. Do we know the coefficients right now? In this divisive week of bulls and bears, are you flying blind? Or within your equation, your expectations that you see, do you actually feel like you've got a handle on how the equations piece together? For us, you know, we do think we have some sense, especially you see what the rotation has been. As the market has been pretty flat this week, like you mentioned, still underneath the hood, you're seeing certain groups have a higher beta to the more positive COVID news. You're seeing more the cyclicals and the value trade outperforming. And that has been the trend month to date. We think that has legs and has much longer to go in the longer term outside of six months. Okay. In the longer term, in the short term, how much of a hit could that cyclical trade take? Well, as you know, with cyclicality, it's very sensitive to the economic indicators and how the economic recovery is going. So far, recovery seems to be chugging along, but we know the biggest risk it has and has always been what happens with the coronavirus cases. Is it manageable? You know, for example, in New York City, you're seeing schools close. You're seeing restaurant dining get rolled back an hour short. These things are concerning if we get them at a nationwide uh, uh, spread. They're more concerning, Anna, if we make a policy mistake. And Tom Keane, I think that's why the biggest news perhaps overnight around this market was the gap that's emerging between the Federal Reserve, Chairman Powell, and the Treasury, Secretary Mnuchin. <clears throat> Tom, I think for many people in this credit market right now, there's a worry that if the Fed backs away, you start to see a gapping out and a tightening of financial conditions. That would be my concern this morning. I have to say I was surprised that I didn't see yeah. a big move in this market. We had a bit of one overnight, then we erased it pretty quickly. Oh, I think everybody in Washington, at least, is overwhelmed by the constitutional news. But, but what's so important here, John, to your good point, is the fiscal stimulus timeline has been adjusted. There's no question about that. And Han, I want to go back to beta. You mentioned beta, and let's call it sector beta. To full disclosure, folks, I don't believe in beta on individual securities. Anna, is beta now in the beta change into 2021, is it an absolute change or is it a relative change? Can I still own tech? You can still own tech, but we think, you know, for 2021, market can move higher, but we're thinking more pedestrian growth than we've seen in the past two, three years. So for us, the game becomes the more relative beta game. We want to know if the market's going to be more pedestrian returns and growth. Well, what about underneath that? Which sectors are going to have that relative outperformance, that relative beta. For us, we think it's more that economically sensitive names, that COVID tied names. So that's what we've been recommending to investors right now when you look out to 2021. The financials part of that story, Anna, even with the bond market doing what it's done over the last couple of weeks. It is. It is, John. And within financial specifically, you know, the, the trotted and beaten down and unloved banks. You know, recently we've pounded the table on being overweight banks for a longer term trade because, you know, valuations look ripe for the picking. And as we've seen, that book to price factor has performed since March. And we think it has more to go. That helps that bank's argument. And, you know, eventually with rates staying at zero, even if we don't get the biggest fiscal stimulus package. And now that we do have concerns, what happens if that credit support uh, rolls off? But seeing if that maintains status quo, 
that's going to help banks come back, especially longer down the road, we get a little reflation. We're speaking with Anna Han of Wells Fargo Securities. Anna, I want to go back to something John was talking about, this rift that's emerging between the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Secretary, Stephen Mnuchin, about this extra money that was going toward corporate bond purchases, that was going toward Main Street lending facilities, that was going toward municipal bond uh, uh, purchases. I'm wondering how much this threatens the idea that the Fed can swoop in as a backstop to markets. Well, frankly, this has been one of the biggest arguments for equities and valuations where they are. Does this threaten that on any level based on the sudden inconsistency here in messaging? Lisa, you know, you're right. It's absolutely a bit of a shock to hear suddenly Treasury Mnuchin and the Fed are taking different stances. As you mentioned, one of the reasons why we can justify such inflated equity multiples, especially on the S&P 500 compared to history, it's this liquidity we've had, this monetary accommodation. And, you know, now you have Treasury Mnuchin asking for a refund. That's unexpected because one of the one steady things we've had through a lot of this turmoil has been monetary support. Now, if that is sapped away, if companies lose their access to capital, that comes into stress for equities and equities are likely to see a big pullback. But so far, we've seen credit spreads tight well-behaved, both in the investment grade and the high-yield market. So as long as that can remain capped, we think equity volatility stays muted as well. And, you know, multiples can continue. And a great to catch up, as always. Anna Han there of Wells Fargo Securities. Here's the way it works. Scott Kleinman and Jim Zelter at Apollo Management in a weak moment took one of the best economists in the street and dragged him over into the dark side of asset management economic analysis. They stole Torsten Slack from Deutsche Bank. Huge loss for Peter Hooper and their team, and we're thrilled that Mr. Slack could join us this morning. Torsten, uh, a global Wall Street question. How's it different being an economist for a massive global bank versus being an economist for asset managers? Well, the data and the analysis is uh, really literally identical. I mean, trying to think about what markets are doing and where they're going, the analysis ends up being exactly 100% the same. So in that sense, uh, uh, the job that we all have of trying to think about where is the economy going and where are financial markets going is the same for all of us. You're at a cross-section at a very interesting time, though. We have uh, Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan coming out, saying that he could expect uh, a contraction even in Q4 as a result of the worsening pandemic. And then you have Jim Paulson of Luthold, who just came on and says that he expects a 5% expansion in Q4, this sort of bullish attitude in markets versus the bearishness of economists. Where do you come out in this divide that seems to be growing? Yeah, what uh, is very important to watch is the high-frequency data. And jobless claims yesterday, as you also talked about, of course, uh, was going up. That means that more people are becoming unemployed. This is a yellow light for risky assets. I mean, there's something here that's going on in the economic data where the nightmare scenario for markets would be if the unemployment rate in November will begin to go higher. I mean, we are still waiting for the vaccine. Uh, there is still some time before the vaccine comes. We have now more conversations about uh, whether we need a second generation of a vaccine. There's a lot of still question marks around how the vaccine will be uh, both deployed and how it will function, et cetera. But the short answer to your question, Lisa, is that um, in the short term, it's very different from, as a forecast, the way it normally is. Normally, you have a lot of certainty about the short term and not much certainty about the long term. But here, it's the complete opposite. We have a much better idea about uh, what things will look like in 2021 than what we have in the next two months. 
Torsten, I really underestimated the resilience of the US economy and how quickly it would bounce back, and many other people did as well. Are we repeating that again as we work our way through winter? So it is the case that the US economy is more resilient than any other economy in the world. We have much more dynamic labor markets, product markets. We have more competition across all markets than literally any other country in the world. So in that sense, uh, the dynamism of the US economy is not being impacted, uh, at least not dramatically uh, at the moment. That being said, the cyclical movements around that structural issue uh, continue to be a risk here in the short term. And that's why uh, some of the high frequency indicators, both of mobility have started to go down. Also open table restaurant bookings have also started to go down. We have uh, some rollovers, even New York City transit MTA data has also started to show some more weakness in the last few weeks. So uh, we're a little bit worried about where the high frequency data is taking us at the moment. Well, let's talk about the policy composition, the policy prescription. Often on programs like this, you talk about speed and size. We talked about that with Jared Bernstein earlier this morning. Let's talk about composition, where you would target the stimulus right now, Torsten. Where does it need to go? I think it is highly unusual, as you also just spoke about a little while ago. It's highly unusual that you have the Federal Reserve and the Central Bank asking fiscal policy for aggressive action. I mean, as you all know, I used to work at the IMF, and there the main lesson is that the Central Bank should be telling politicians to spend less money now you both have in Europe and in the U.S. the central bankers almost asking and pleading politicians to spend more money. Please increase government expenditures. Please cut taxes. That is just a really unusual signal and tells you how significant the message is from the Federal Reserve at the moment in telling that we do need some more support. And it comes really from the fact that we're still 10 million jobs below today where we were in February. So in that sense, the hole in the economy is still right. pretty deep. And that's why the need for fiscal expansion and the call from that from the Federal Reserve is so significant. Torsten, to your claim charts, what has moved is service sector inflation has become service sector disinflation. What are you advising Apollo management? Does it sustain here? Does it become more disinflationary? Or do we just assume a reversion to that 3% level on the great service sector question? Yeah, this is a really important point, Tom, because the shock to the economy uh, with this pandemic came to the service sector. It was restaurants, it was retail, and therefore we saw significant declines in prices and significant declines in employment in the service sector. That's now rebounding, so that's why we're seeing a reversal of that. But historically, over the last 20 years, remember, if you separate CPI into goods inflation, has basically been zero for the last 20 years. All the inflation that we have seen and most of the variation yeah. inflation has come from the service sector. That's why the unusual situation here with the service sector being a driver of inflation, first to the downside and now to the upside, is something that is very important for the inflation outlook overall, that we have had this compositional shift where the service sector suddenly is playing a more cyclical role relative to the goods sector. So are you framing the American economy as a return to previous trend or are we establishing a new level of trend that will be a lesser level? So in trillions of dollars, we're still 1.3 trillion, in, at least in Q3, in terms of how far away we are from getting back to the trend that we had pre-pandemic. Yeah. If you want to fill up completely the hole that has been created in the last uh, two or three quarters, then we need something more like 4 trillion. This gives you some idea about 
what is the magnitude of uh, fiscal need, if you will? And the question exactly is, as you're asking, well, do we want to get just back up to the trend line or do we want to fill up the hole completely? In other words, how quickly do we want to get the unemployment rate to come back to the three and a half percent that we had in February? So in that sense, um, all this will depend, of course, on the speed of when the vaccine will come back. But it also will depend on this issue that we also are talking about all the time, if we will get another fiscal stimulus or not here, either before the end of this year or sometime in the beginning of the new year. Of course, as we try to plug this hole by borrowing money, there is a question of that overhang of debt, the unbelievable expansion of debt globally over the past nine months in order to plug this hole, what that will do to growth going forward. And I'm just thinking about our conversation about zombie companies not that long ago, 20% of the large U.S. companies considered zombies. What does that do to long-term growth in the United States? Do you think it's adequately priced in? So the BIS uh, has done a lot of work on this, and what they have repeatedly said now for several years, actually, is that uh, if we have a bigger share of companies that ultimately are more unproductive and are using resources, using CapEx, using workers, then uh, you do run the risk that that begins to have some macroeconomic implications. And on top of that comes also the other issue to your question, Lisa, that if you do have such a significant increase in the amount of U.S. Treasuries outstanding, what should you then be watching? You should be watching for risks of uh, potentially talking about downgrades to the sovereign of the U.S. Fitch already has U.S. sovereign on negative watch. You should also be looking at Treasury auctions for what is the bid to cover ratio doing. You should also be looking more broadly for demand and supply in the Treasury market. So far, everything is fine, but it's pretty clear that uh, when you think about the very significant actions from the Federal Reserve, there is some very important questions about demand and supply in Treasuries that we all need to think about also over the coming months. Torsten, what are you optimistic about next year? So I am optimistic about the vaccine, and I do think it will work. But this very unusual situation where there's more clarity about 2021 than there is about the rest of 2020, <laughs> that is really making it very difficult when you sit with your spreadsheet and try to put together your forecast for the global economy. It does make it quite complicated to think about, well, will markets trade on the bad news in the near term and the downside risks, or will markets look through that and just focus on the vaccine next year. That's why there is still a risk that things could be still a bit bumpy in the next few months before we have uh, the final answer on the vaccine, whether this is something that will help everyone and really will be as helpful as we're all hoping at the moment. Torsten, wonderful to catch up and great to see you in a new seat. Fantastic. Torsten Slock there, now of Apollo Management. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.